All right. Well, I'm thankful for the Sabbath day. Thankful to be here. Thankful to teach on the book of James. I've been studying it a lot. I feel like I know something about it. I feel like i got something to share with everybody. I think it's an encouraging book. The last time I spoke, we went through in the first chapter, verses 2 through 4 in the book of James. And this week, we're going to look at verses 5 through 12. But by the way of review, I'd like, to rem- I'd like for you to remember that throughout the entire book of James, he's encouraging us not just to confess our faith, but that we practice a righteous work in true saving faith. And the true saving faith is our central theme in the study. And we found that in this book, it contains a series of tests to verify our own true saving faith. Martin Luther made a statement one time about the epistle of James. I don't know what gives him this right to make the statement, but he made the statement that it is a strawy epistle, meaning that it's almost useless, that James concentrates more on works than he does on faith. And I'm here to argue the point that he doesn't concentrate more on works than he does on faith, but rather more on faith than he does on works. With the exception, I guess the difference is, not the exception, but the difference between one of Paul's writings, maybe in the book of Romans, versus James' writing, is that Paul makes an attempt to prove salvation by grace and faith, or not to prove it, but that grace produces salvation. And James makes the attempt to prove that that true faith produces works. It's not a it's not a contradiction. They run parallel. It's kind of like I was talking. I think Brother Danny maybe this week or somebody else. I was talking to somebody else, but it's it's like they accompany one another. Faith and works they come side by side. If you see faith coming up the work up the road, here comes works right with it. It doesn't. Not, you don't see one without the other. It's it's, it's kind of like uh, if me if me and Frankie, if everywhere we went, you seen us together, you'd say, well, if I showed up without Frankie, you'd say, well, that's not something's not right, you know. He's uh he doesn't have Frankie with him. Same way with faith and works. One comes, so does the other one. Without faith, you don't have works, you know, and vice versa. So anyway, Martin Luther, I think he made a. Uh, kind of harsh statement towards James' epistle, which I don't think he has the right to do anyway, but this is the, which who I believe the half-brother of the master, and uh, I don't know who Martin Luther thinks he is, but undoubtedly he's the father of at least the Lutheran church. But the first test was, was that of true saving faith. Will we count it all joy when we experience trials? That's what we talked about last week. We also learned that we have to endure our trials because they're necessary in order to make us complete and lacking nothing. The purpose of our trials is to refine us according to Yahweh's will and his greater plan. We've learned of several people who experienced joy in their trial, like Job and Paul and even Yeshua. They, they not only counted it all joy, but they also knew that it was Yahweh working on them, on them, so they endured it for the better good of Yahweh's plan. Now, I understand that joy in trials is extremely difficult. For anybody, for that matter, but hopefully this week we're going to learn a little bit about how to endure trials, and so that they don't seem to overwhelm us when we when we go through the trials. So with that said, let's turn to James chapter one, and uh, I'm going to read verses two through twelve, and then I'll try to expound upon 
find the context. It's important that we not just go through trials, but we be victorious on the other side of them. A lot of people, um, a lot of people experience trials, but they don't, they don't get anything out of it when they go through it. And the idea, even, even as you'll see in verse 12, when it talks about the crown, it's talking specifically about a victor's crown. He, he talks about we'll be given the crown of life, but it, in James's day, a lot, of, a lot of theologians would disagree with this theory right here, but I think it's accurate. People competed in Rome and things like that, and because, because of the way they competed, most people say with James with his Jewish background or you know Israelite background wouldn't support it or he wouldn't even comment on it in one of his writings. But at the, at the end of whatever the game would be, they would be given a crown. And um, I can't remember the Greek word. I had remembered it, but I forgot it now. But anyway, the Greek word for crown right there specifically talks about a victor's crown. And in verse 12, which we're going to read it, but it says, Blessed is a man who endures trials, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life. It's a victor's crown. So my point is to say this. We need to be victors. We need to receive crowns, and we don't just need to undergo trials for no reason. There has to be something to it, we have to we have to grow and learn throughout our trials. But anyway, back to the back to the scriptures. We'll start in verse two. I'll read through verse twelve. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask the Almighty who gives to all generously and without criticizing and will be given and it will be given to him but let him ask in faith without doubting for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind that person should not expect to receive anything from Yahweh an indecisive man is unstable in all his ways the brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation but the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the man who endures trials, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he, that he has promised to those who love him. Again, we're going to take this verse by verse, 5 through 12. Like I said, we covered 2 through 4 last week. We'll go through 5 through 12 this this week. But first, I'd like to say this, and you can write it down or make a mental note, but remember this for your trials in the future. Trials cannot, will not, never will destroy faith. They can't do it. It's because true faith is a gift of Yahweh, and it's forever. It's not destroyed. You can't destroy it with a trial. No trial sent to destroy a believer. It's only to make you stronger. If the trial was to destroy you, it defeats the purpose of you being tested. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't refine you at all if it destroys you. So instead, it's to refine you into something better. In verse 5, it says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask the Almighty, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. Some Bible says it will be given generously and without reproach. Same thing. Remember that the, remember that the verse numbers and the chapter divisions in our Bibles, they're not in the original text. 
And so the thought in verse 5 is continued from 2 through 4 about joy and endurance through trials. Most of our English versions begin with verse 5. They say like, it says it like this, or it renders it this way, if any of you lacks wisdom. But the original Greek says, but if, but if any of you lacks wisdom. I tell you that to show you that the thought is continued from verses 2 through 4. So that the wisdom that James is referring to here in verse 5 is wisdom regarding trials. I believe that James is presenting here one of the reasons that we have troubles in our trials. It's because we lack wisdom. The good news is that if we lack wisdom to deal with our trials, the very next thing the verse tells us to do is to ask for it, and it will be given to us. We should not necessarily be praying and asking for the removal of our trials. We talked about that a minute ago. Victors wear crowns, not people that bow out. We shouldn't ask for the removal of our trials, but rather we should be asking for the wisdom to go through them and to manage them. We should be praying and asking for wisdom in order to make the right use of the trial. Take um, take Solomon, for example, in 1 Kings. You don't have to turn here. I'll turn here. I want to read it to you. But in 1 Kings and starting in, um, in verse 7, it says, Yahweh my Elohim, you now have made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon didn't say, take it away from me. I'm just a small child. I can't manage the household that you put in front of me, nor can I manage the kingdom that my father built. He says, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Wisdom begins with knowing and depending solely on Yahweh's help. And he's never stingy when it comes to wisdom for those who seek it earnestly. As it tells us in the last part of the verse in James, he says it gives it, he gives it liberally, liberally or generously and without criticizing or reproach. In other words, Yahweh doesn't chasten you when you come and ask for it. When Solomon asked Yahweh for wisdom, he didn't chasten him for it. He didn't say, Solomon, well, I'm going to give it to you, but you don't really deserve it. Or Solomon, you're a sinner, and your dad was a sinner, and I'm going to give it to you, but you don't really deserve it. Yahweh doesn't say that. Listen to what he says in First. 10, it says, now it pleased Yahweh that Solomon had requested this. So Yahweh said to him, because, because you have requested this and did not ask for long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked, to, you asked for discernment for yourself to understand justice, I will therefore do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that, so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. In addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor, so that no man in any kingdom will be your equal during your entire life. I'll give you all this because you asked for wisdom. And in James 1 and verse 5, he says, Now if anybody lacks wisdom, he should ask Yahweh, who gives to all generously, without reproach. If we want wisdom, we should ask for it. He won't scold you for asking for the wisdom. There's no need in that because you're already in the trial He's trying to do something good for you. All you got to do is ask for his help. His goal is to make you better on the other side, so the wisdom is for your help through it. There's an ancient Greek maxim that states this. The knowledge of ignorance is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if we understand that we're ignorant, 
without Yahweh's help of wisdom, then we should ask for it. As I said before, wisdom begins solely with depending on Yahweh for it. Let's look at a few scriptures about wisdom. Job chapter 28 and verse 12 through 28, I want to read them. But where can wisdom be found, and where is understanding located? No man can know its value, since it cannot be found in the land of the living. The ocean depths say it's not in me, while the sea declares I don't have it. Gold cannot be exchanged for it, and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass do not compare with it, and articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for it. Coral and quartz are not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond pearls. Topaz from Cush cannot compare with it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is understanding located? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, we have heard news of it with our ears. But the Almighty understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its location. For he looks at the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And when the Almighty fixed the weight of the wind and limited the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. He said to mankind, look, the fear of Yahweh, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. Job saw that Yahweh is the only one with wisdom or even understanding of it. Wisdom in our trial can come only from Yahweh. In James 3.17, he tells us that the wisdom from above is pure and peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits without favoritism. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, Yahweh gives wisdom from his mouth. Yahweh gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So back in James... Chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, if you lack wisdom or if you or if you don't have a practical understanding of what you're going through in life, then ask Yahweh. That's what wisdom is, a practical understanding of what you're dealing with, the issues at hand. That's wisdom. He says, if you don't have this, then ask Yahweh. He's good, he's holy, and, he's, and he gives to all who are asking generously and without reproach. He will supply the wisdom we need if we ask, but if we try to go through trials without it or with, alone, without Yahweh's wisdom, we're usually overcome. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Verse 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from Yahweh. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. Verse 6 says to ask in faith without doubting. You must have faith that Yahweh can and will give you wisdom. If you doubt, it will be, you, if you doubt, it will be like being tossed in the sea or in the wind and you will not receive the wisdom you need from Yahweh. When we doubt, we're, we waver between belief and unbelief. In one moment, we're on the shores of faith and hope, but in the next moment, we're rolled back into despair and unbelief. We're just tossed to and fro. That's what James means when he says that we're like the surging sea and driven and tossed by the wind. And if you're not thoroughly persuaded that if you ask Yahweh for wisdom that you'll receive it, then you fall under verses 7 and 8. You deserve and should expect nothing from Yahweh. If you ask without faith 
and you don't believe that he will help you, you don't deserve anything from him. Luke chapter 9 and verse 62. I'm going to start in verse 58. Yeshua is telling all the people that are coming up to him and people that he's trying to talk to along the way. In verse 57 it says, As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Yeshua told him, Foxes have foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. Lord, he said, First let me go bury my father. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of the Almighty. And another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Yeshua said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of the Almighty. That's a double-minded man. The Greek actually emphasizes a man of two souls, one that thinks two different ways. A man that puts his hand to the plow, but he's not sure and he looks back. He's a double-minded man, and Yeshua says he's not fit for the kingdom. When Abraham prayed for Lot and his wife and their children to be brought out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and his wife looked back and she was turned into the pillar of salt, she should have just left. The angels told her, don't look back. Somebody that didn't believe, that didn't have faith. But there is an opposite to that. There are people that did have faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 22 Abraham was a man of faith. And in verse 16 it says this, This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the, are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all in Yahweh's sight. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He believed the Almighty who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. Against hope, with hope he believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what had been spoken, so will your descendants be. He considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, without weakening in the faith, he did not waver in unbelief at Yahweh's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to Yahweh, because he was fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. This is a perfect example of unwavering faith. Abraham was not being tossed to and fro. He stood firm in his faith, and he believed that what Yahweh promised, not only was he able to finish the promise, he would, he would accomplish all the means in between. He would do all of it. I think that in Genesis 22, Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain for the sacrifice. And oh, what it must have been. It must have been devastating for Abraham. You imagine somebody that, that has waited so long to have a child. He's nearly 100 years old and his firstborn's born finally. And he gets up into, I don't know, I'm going to say his teenage years. And Abraham is told to carry him to the mountain and make the sacrifice. And everything that he had confidence in had to be tried. He was supposed to be the father of many nations through the seed of Isaac. The seed that was called and the seed that was chosen, that's, that's who he's supposed to be, the father of many nations, but yet he was told to take him by the hand, carry him to the mountain, and slay him. Well, I believe that Abraham had faith that not only if he had to slay his son, that Yahweh would raise him from the dead. I believe that he was just that great of a mighty one, and I believe Abraham had that much faith. He said that, you're, that nations will come from you, you know, through, through Isaac. 
if Isaac's dead, no, no nation can come of him. But I believe Abraham believed that just as he raised seed from somebody that was 100 years old, if it took raising Isaac from the dead to produce more seed or an offspring, I believe that he counted his promise. He found faith in it. And that's the kind of faith that we have to have in Yahweh. When we ask him for, when we ask him for help, when we ask him for um, wisdom, we have to have faith that he's going to provide, provide it for us. We don't need to say, well, Yahweh help me if I just pray. We need to know that if we ask and have an unwavering faith, that Yahweh will accomplish what you ask. And once we ask for wisdom, where's, where's the first place that Yahweh shows it to us? It's always the scriptures. That's where we get our answers for. You want answers? You ask for answers? They're bound in between the front and the back cover of this book right here. Through the scriptures, we find our answers. If we want wisdom, we ask for it in faith first, and then we search the scriptures to understand the truth that he has already given to people who have walked prior to us, or either he's given, a, he's given, a, given it laid out for us. The second place that we might find the answers of wisdom is through our circumstances. Maybe through a brother or sister in church, or through someone who's been through a similar trial that you're going through, or maybe just... Yahweh works it out in our circumstances. As we go through a trial, we start to see it unfold, and we see the beauty that Yahweh's doing, working on our lives, and he's, he's changing us, and we see it, and we rest in that because we know what he's doing. You know, we, can see, we can see the end starting to come, come, you know, come to fruition. I believe our main problem is that when we undergo trials, we're double-minded, meaning that we want our own will to be accomplished, but maybe only at times we hope for Yahweh's will to be accomplished. This is a big problem. We say the right things with our lips that we want Yahweh to accomplish our refining, but deep down inside we have reservations, and somehow we think that our will is better than his. This is the unstable man referred to in verse 8 and the one who will receive nothing from Yahweh in verse 7. Instead, we have to ask for wisdom from Yahweh to understand his viewpoint and will for our lives. It has to come from Yahweh. If we try to understand it on our own, we will certainly fail. Verses 9 through 11. Verse 9. The brother of humble circumstance should boast in his exaltation, while the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beauty appears. A beautiful appearance is destroyed. In some way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing this activity. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activity. James is telling us here that no trial or circumstance in life should hinder us from rejoicing in Yahweh. And in verse 9, he's talking about a man who is poor or depraved. This could be referring to one with no money or no economical source, no social status or position of prestige. He tells this man to boast in his exaltation. His exaltation is knowing that nothing physical or monetary can help him in the second life anyway. It don't help him now. He doesn't even have it. So he can't boast because he doesn't have physical things to drag him away from Yahweh, but he still has spiritual things that can produce eternal life. Remember Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Yeshua said, don't collect for yourself treasures on earth. Where thieves break in and steal, and rust destroy, and moths eat, but rather store up things in heaven where nothing can destroy it. That's a paraphrase. I'm not quoting it exactly. 
In keeping with the context, though, it could also be referring to the one who has suffered various trials and being brought lower poor. This man may not have been poor before he started going through his trials, and now he is brought lower poor in his trials. And James says if trials have brought this person low, he can still exalt in knowing that Yahweh is doing work for him. You boast in these things. You boast in the trials that are where you're at in your trials. Being lowly in spirit because of trials is still a matter of rejoicing because they're still exalted by faith to be heirs of the kingdom. And in verse 10, James is given the opposite effect of the poor man. He says the man that is rich or has much should boast in his humiliation. First of all, this is not talking about the man's eternal destiny when it says the rich man will pass away like a flower of the field. It's just referring to physical death. He is simply saying that just as the poor man finds his happiness in heavenly or holy things, so also should the rich man. He shouldn't boast in worldly things or what he has. But his gain is rather in the death of Yeshua. That's where that he'll. That's where he should boast. That's where he should be. That should be exalted at. He should boast when he realizes nothing here is beneficial and that his monetary possessions benefit him none in the life to come. Just as the flower of the field passes away, so will his social status and his money, and the only thing he can boast in is that he's, he's exalted in Christ. The rich man can only rejoice in his trials, which teach him to seek happiness from Yahweh, not from his earthly possessions, which will wither away, as it says in verse 11. Possessions and worldly things should never become our confidence, because Yahweh gives and takes away as he wills, and our whole trust and security is in the blood of his own son and of heavenly things, and the hope that we find in verse 12. But before we get in verse 12, where it talks about the crown of life that's given for the man that endures trials, isn't it funny how some people are wealthy and some people aren't? Both of them may be Christians. Both of them may be followers of Christ. But when it comes to the assembly, you don't have a lot of wealthy people and poor people. You don't notice the difference. Not in faith. It doesn't matter. Because money benefits you nothing here. Money benefits you nothing in the kingdom. It doesn't do you a bit of good. Prestige or power, political status, none of that stuff matters. None of that stuff matters. The governor of Georgia, the president of the United States, the king of England, it don't do him any good. None of that, none of that matters. None of that matters. He's just a king or he's just a president or he's just a governor. Or he may be loaded. He may have more money than he could spend in four lifetimes, but it don't do him any good. He'll die, and all those things will go by the wayside. But the man of low, low degree, the man that sleeps under a bridge in Atlanta, lays up underneath I-75 on a cot every night, he may have the most precious gift of all when all those people are missing out. He's got faith in the one that died and was slain for him. That's what James is saying. He says, the man that sleeps under the bridge, he says, you boast because you don't have nothing. You've got something great. And he says, as for you rich men, he said, find, find your boasting and your humiliation. Don't boast in the things of the world because they can't do anything for you. They're just a waste. They're a distraction. If you've got money or ever had money, surely you can contest that it's just a distraction. The more you have, the more it pulls you away from your Bible time. The more you have, the more it takes you away from Yahweh. It's not bad. It's not wrong to have things, but the more you have, the worse it gets. It's a whole lot easier to be to live under that bridge. He don't have nothing to do but read. 
I don't I don't want to be the man that lives under the bridge. I don't mean it like that. All I'm saying is it's okay if you're if you're of humble circumstances. It's all right. He's got something great. He's got something great, and that's a that's hope and faith in Yeshua. And I'm all right with that. I'm all right with that. So verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who endures trials, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. Finally, James says, Blessed is the man who endures trials. This is what we've been waiting for, the grand finale of the trial. James says, for when he passes the test, notice he doesn't say if he passes the test, but when he passes the test, he will pass because true faith never fails. And when his faith is finally perfected through the trials, he receives a crown, which is life, that Yahweh promises to those who love him. Isn't it great? Once we've passed the test, once we've endured, once we've counted it all joy, once we've gained wisdom, and once we've been refined, then we receive the crown of eternal life. The reason for all of our trials and tests is so that we are refined and made better. So that what we become... It's what he wants us to be, not what we want to be, not what we desire to be. But he puts us through tests to make us who we, he wants us to be, what we're supposed to be. Praise Yahweh for his renewing power. In verse 12, this is kind of an add, add-in right here, but I want, to, I want to share it with you. I found it interesting. I didn't know this, so this is news to me. In verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who can t- endures trials because when he passes, tests, passes the test, he will receive the crown of life. The phrase here in verse 12, he will receive the crown of life, is what Greek scholars call an appositional genitive. I don't even know what that is, but I've learned it this week. So it's an appositional genitive. And literally, it should read like this, because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown, which is eternal life. He will receive the crown, which is eternal life. The point is that the crown is eternal life. Some of you may already knew that. I've often heard that we store up crowns to present in the kingdom. I don't think that's what it means here, at least not in this in this um, text and several other texts that we're fishing to go to. But the point is that the crown is eternal life, not some gold crown that you take with you to heaven. You know, it's just a metaphor. And this is the same thing that's done in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And I'm going to flip to that. I want to show you this. I think you find it interesting. But 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 8, it says, In the future there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which Yahweh, the righteous judge, will give me on the day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearance. This is not a single crown that one person gets. This is given to all of them that love that that love his appearance. This is the crown of righteousness, the crown which is righteousness. And rightly so, on that day, the day that he's referencing is the day of our Lord and Savior. That day we'll be given the, a crown of glory. That day we'll be given a crown of righteousness. It's not a crown that we take to the kingdom with him. It's eternal life. That's what we're going to get. That's the end of the trial. He gives that to the person that endured the crown of righteousness or the crown of um, eternal life. And also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, he says this. Matthew actually covered this verse a couple weeks ago talking about the, I guess, accredited leadership. In chapter 5, verse 4, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd appears at his second coming. 
And that's what we will receive, the unfading crown of glory or the crown of eternal life or the crown of righteousness. They're all the same. It's eternal life that they're talking about, and they use it in a metaphor using a crown. We will receive the crown, which is glory. I just wanted to bring that out. I thought it was pretty neat. I've always, I guess in the back of my mind, never really studied it, and I've always thought that we just take, you know, maybe a judgment or something, we get a bunch of crowns or something, and then we just take them and lay them at the feet of somebody. You know, it talks about the 24 elders laying the, the crowns in, in Revelation chapter 4, but I hope that we know that we're not the 24 elders that are gathered around in a circle that's 12 representatives of the tribes of Israel and 12 of the apostles, you know. So, um, we're not we're not those twenty four that are casting crowns. But um anyway I thought it was neat that it's just a Greek word and uh, or a Greek phrase that's pretty common to them and, and uh if you only understood Greek it would make more sense to you. But anyway, brothers and sisters, endure endure your trials because you're promised happiness and eternal life. Everything else is fleeting fleeting I guess. But eternal life should be your goal. I'm thankful to get to share with you guys today. I hope that um, I hope you're learning something out of this, and I hope that it benefits you in some trials that you might go through. Uh, McCord called me the other day. I'm not trying to embarrass him, but McCord called me the other day, and he said, "Man, I've had a rough day." It was right after I talked last last time, and he says, "Man, I've, that that sermon's been slapping me all day." And I'm like, "Man, good." <laughs> Everybody in here that knows me probably knows that I chew tobacco or have, and I. Uh, I decided to uh, I decided to quit about five days ago. Just decided to quit, and uh, so I quit. I quit doing it. And uh, you know it's rough. Matthew called me one day. He said, "How's it going?" I said, "It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible." But I just preached that we need to find joy in our trial. And I said, "But I'm smiling, man. I'm smiling." You know, it's good. It's good. You know what? I it's hard. It is hard. It's hard to do anything. It's hard to go through any trial. But if you'll smile, it's better. I've tried to have the best attitude. Just, just period. I've tried to have the best attitude for the best week and a half, and I think I have. And it, you know what? It makes other people smile. It makes me smile. I find I find joy in my trial. Life's not been no cake work far as work wise for me for the last week or so, but I'm gonna find joy. It doesn't. What good does it do to get all upset and to to whine about stuff? It don't do anything but make your life miserable, and make everybody else's life miserable. So you might as well just smile and uh, say, hey. Yahweh, make me new, make me whole. I know that you're doing this for a reason. I love you, and I thank, and I'm thankful for it. And um, know that whatever He produces, whatever comes out the other side, it's better than it was when it started in that fire. You know, so put me, put me under the fire, make me, uh, make me new, refine me. I, I heard of a diamond test. I don't know if y'all have ever heard this before, but I've heard of a diamond test where you can take a, you can take two diamonds, you can take a a bogus diamond and a real diamond, and you can put them under the water. And when they when they when they go under the water, the real diamond will shine true every time, but the fake diamond will cloud up you almost as if you can't see it under the water. Well, that's the way true faith is looked at through the eyes of Yahweh. Yahweh, if He puts you under the test, He puts you under a trial. The the one with true faith, He'll shine, but the one with one with the bogus faith. He'll cloud up every time. It's because it's got to be real. It can't be fake. It's got to be real. When we 
when we start through a trial, we've got to have faith. We've got to know that Yahweh's doing something great with us, know that he can help us through it, and know that he is the whole reason that we're going through the trial. Don't give Satan the credit. Satan don't put me through a trial. This is Yahweh that does this. The adversary don't put me through a trial. Yahweh puts me through a trial. He makes me new, and he does it for the benefit of his kingdom. He makes me whole. He makes me beautiful that I might edify you guys, or I might edify my family, or that I might become something great for him. That's what he did with Solomon. Solomon asked for wisdom. He said, hey, he wants to judge my people righteously. He wants to judge a righteous people. I'm going to give him wisdom. He's asking for something righteous. That's what we need to ask for. Ask for wisdom. Help us through it. Help us through it. We're all going to have them. So you might as well get ready, ready for them and, uh, and love them. Smile while you go through them. It doesn't do any good to pout and whine about it. So uh, I love you guys. Thanks for letting me teach. And, and uh, I hope you get something out of it. All right, I'll pray and we'll dismiss all that. Father Yahweh, thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. Father, I just give you praise today. I give you praise for all the trials that you put me through. Father, and for the ones in the future, I pray that you'd give me wisdom and strength. Give everybody in here wisdom and strength to endure what you what you put us through. We know that you do it for good reason and that we will come out the other side shining like bright diamonds. So, Father... Make us new, refine us as gold, make us new, make us whole, and uh, make us be what you'd have us to be. And let us count it all joy as we go through it, Father. We love you so much, and we're so thankful for your only begotten Son. All the work that was done in our stead by him, Father, we love you, and we thank you for that. We just give you praise. We lift him up today. Father, we lift you up today. We love you. Father, I pray that you'd let us all go home safe and... and, uh, have a good rest of the Sabbath, and Father, come back next Sabbath. And Yahweh, I pray for the for the prayer requests that were mentioned earlier. I just pray that you'd be in each one of those, and you know what they are. And Father, I just pray that you'd um continually bless and work in each person's life. Let your Spirit be manifest in us, and let us walk and be the life that you've led us to be. Father, we ask all this in your precious and holy Son's name.